The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Today on Radical Personal Finance, we do a Q&A show. I have four questions lined up. How do we handle lots of expected and encouraged, wink, wink, by your superior, job obligations that are expensive and that cut into our savings rate? Question number two, I am trying to figure out a way to pay for my wife's uh, Uh, Graduate school, should we take out student loans or should we take a loan against our TSP? Question number three is I'm in the middle of school looking to possibly start a business, but I'm concerned about the impact of that on my schooling and my career. And question number four, how do I take and turn a 16-week paternity leave into something that will help me generate much more additional cash flow? Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you for being with me. Q&A show. That's where I do my best to try to help you with uh, some thoughts. I try to choose questions that are applicable across the board. Of course, you have to be the judge of the usefulness, but take some of these ideas and figure out if you can apply them to your situation, even today. have a mondo queue of uh, questions that came in from the audience. After I'd messed up the email system and got it fixed, I wound up with a huge, huge, huge uh, deluge of emails, which thank you to all of you who have emailed me. (laughs) Uh, But I wound up with a huge deluge of emails, and uh, a lot of them had great questions, many of them from uh, that I thought would be applicable and useful and interesting to talk through on the show. And so today, that's what we do. Let's get right to – well, before I get right to the question from Stephen, the first question, sponsor of today's show is Paladin Registry. Uh, if you need a financial advisor, the best place for you to start your search is at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin. I get asked a lot, Joshua, how do I find a great financial advisor? It's tough. My main purpose here with Radical Personal Finance is to give you knowledge, insight, and frankly just equip you uh, a little bit better, give you some defense, defensive skills uh, against the financial advice industry. But at the end of the day, when you need specific advice, Advice. You can't have an email sit in Joshua's list here for six months before he responds to it. <laughs> you need an actual advisor. Uh, and a good way is to, to find that person is to go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin. That's a registry service. Jack Waymeyer, the founder of Paladin, was a financial advisor himself and said we need to have somebody who's carefully vetting financial advisors, not just the licensing people who are – giving the most basic of, of exams to people. We need to know who is somebody's – how do we – we need to have somebody look through the disciplinary records and look through their experience and their qualifications. So if you're looking for an advisor, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin, P-A-L-A-D-I-N. That will forward you through to a landing page where you'll put in your name, your address, uh, your, your phone number, uh, and the amount of assets that you have. Then Paladin will take that and they will match that up with a couple of advisors that are in your area and they'll put you in touch with them. And you can interview them and see if they might be a good fit for you. I uh, can't promise that you're going to find – 
a financial advisor that works for you. It's got to be a very personal, specific fit, but it's at least a good place to start. Uh, start your search at radicalpersonalfinance.com slash paladin. First question comes in from Stephen. Stephen says, Joshua, thank you very much for the work that you put uh, – I mean, thank you first and foremost for the work you put out for us. You not only inform your listeners but also serve as a more articulate mouthpiece for many of the ideas that we as your listeners may share but we don't – but do not possess the necessary way with words to properly convey to others. I have on many occasions simply linked someone to one of your podcasts as my retort to a particular argument, almost always bringing them to my or our point of view in the subject matter. I write to you in need of advice. I myself am a somewhat mustachian. Sorry, coin a term for your financial independence followers, and I'll refer to myself as that instead. <laughs> we should come up with that with a term. Uh, Pete, he, he, Pete, Mr. Money Mustache, has built a huge community for himself, but I try very hard not to uh, poach off of the work that other people do. I try to just do my own thing and uh, let other people do their thing. So uh, um, I don't have any I like mustachians, no problem with it, but we should come up with a term. If you have a great term, let me know. Uh, comment on today's show or uh, tweet it to me or something uh, and let me know what, what we should do. Best I, make it, best I come up with is radical something or other. That seems to be the, the, the term that I've um, – that I've coined for myself. So I myself am a uh, somewhat of a mustachian, having always been a spend-conscious, simple-living investor. I actually came across this whole financial independent early retirement movement by accident, and upon having become enchanted by the concept, I made the concerted decision to start saving 50% of my net pay. Much to my surprise, upon looking at the numbers, I realized that I was already doing so. In actuality, I was saving 52% of my net pay. Now for the kicker. As mentioned earlier, I am in the military. More precisely, I am a senior military officer. With this role has come much pride, commitment, and honor. Unfortunately, it has also come with additional expenses. There are certain social and professional obligations that come with the territory of senior leadership, many of which carry a hefty price tag. Formal events, special uniforms, forced outings, i.e. golf, I disdain golf, and mandatory socializing. It has even been suggested to me by superiors that I should look into moving to a pricier area farther from base to be amongst my peer group. Much of this is fine and dandy, save for the fact that it's having a negative effect on my savings rate. To be honest, most of the commando fund, as we call it, is not at all – it says mando fund. I'm not sure if that's mandatory fund or commando fund. But most of the mando fund, as we call it, is not at all how I would spend my time were it not in the interest of networking and being part of the team. How do you suggest I manage my personal belief system and desired spending habits with the necessity to not commit professional suicide by ostracizing myself from my more spendy peers. Thanks again. Oh, where to start? <laughs> Stephen, that's a good question because it's a question that we all face and uh, we all face it to a different degree and depending on our industry, it looks different. But it's something that we all face. Uh, with your role in the military, it might come with formal events and special uniforms and forced outings and mandatory socializing. Um, when I was working as a financial advisor, it came with the expectation that you wear a suits to work every day and that you um, you know drive a BMW uh, or that you 
uh, what else? Um, you know, Friday night happy hour that you kicked in when you went to the you went to all the charity events that you got invited to, et cetera, and you buy at the silent auction and those kinds of things. Uh, for other people, it's just maybe even as simple as uh, going out to the 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 lunch with your with your coworkers or or going to the expensive coffee place, those types of things. So we all face this to some degree, and when you're in a culture that doesn't praise thrift or frugality as uh, anything that's really worth admiring, you're going to stand out. Uh, and that's obviously the situation that you find yourself in. And we all have to figure out how to well, – we all have to figure out uh, what to – how to deal with these things. Uh, now, frankly, the, it's <laughs> your email is a little bit offensive to me in the sense that uh, military personnel. Uh, you know, I always think that a military personnel is you know, this should be where you're basically given everything. If I were to go in the military, the expectation that I would have is considering the contract that you make, where you basically surrender all control of your life. Uh, you have no say in where you go, what you do, uh, and your life is on the line. Uh, you, you shouldn't. All, you should basically have things taken care of. That's the history of military service. Uh, so if I went in the military, one of the reasons, <laughs> major reasons, financially speaking, would be that I would expect to have my housing provided and to get my stipend and just have these things taken care of. Uh, now, you're obviously not I – mean, you're a senior officer, so things change in a senior officer and it does look like a much more political system. It does look much more like a other organizations. But it's just a little bit annoying that <laughs> you have to deal with these things. Uh, <laughs> I won't go into that subject anymore, but I understand the, the the frustration. In some ways, though, your decision is the same as as the rest of us. You have to decide how committed you are to your goal of saving money and how committed you are to your career and to what extent these things are actually in conflict. Every career comes with costs, and it's important to make an accurate accounting for those costs. Now, in your case, the costs of your career are are Largely, those things that I just mentioned. I mean, when you're in the military, uh, they own you. You have no say over where you go and what you do. Doesn't matter. Uh, when you you are at the, you serve at the pleasure of the what was I got the I guess the president. You serve at the pleasure of your commanding officers. So you don't have that's one of the major costs. Now these other things also obviously have a cost, and you've got to weigh them. It can be easy, I think, to lose sight of the actual costs when you are recently excited about a new goal. So uh, something like a dress uniform for dress events. My guess is that uh, this is a one-time expense and I'm sure the uniform is expensive, but you probably have some sort of uniform allowance that can help offset some of it. And even if you don't, it's a one-time deal. Uh, the corresponding cost to this would be in the non-military civilian world uh, would be that at a certain level as an executive, you need to own a tuxedo and you just need to own a tuxedo because you're expected to go to the charity events and represent the company at the gala, et cetera. And there's going to be a cost for that and that's not going to be reimbursed. You are a senior military officer. Thus, you're going to be expected to attend these um, – these formal functions, uh, and you're going to be need to be dressed appropriately. If you are a senior corporate uh, uh, representative, you have the same responsibility. You have exactly the same responsibility, and that just is one of the things that comes with the territory. Now, don't get too worried about it. That's a one-time cost. You can care for a uniform and uh, 
you can wear it for the rest of your life. So although it might be a, a big, uh, or at least the rest of your career, although it might not be a, it might be a big expense one time, it's not that big of an expense. Now that's different than say getting in with a local uh, once a week golf uh, outing, where now you're going to be paying range fees, you're going to be paying uh, those things on a continual basis, and golf is going to be bracketed by lunch, and it's going to be gra- bracketed by drinks after the golf game, etc. Well, now you're signing up for not just a one-time expense, but for many, many expenses over time. Those are two very different things. And so don't get too excited about you know, the prospect of saving all my money such that you, you major on the minors. It's a fact as far as I'm concerned that the military is going to require you to fit in. Uh, it seems to me that military service is, is simply built. The whole culture is built on everyone looking the same. That's the whole reason there's uniforms. That's the whole reason boot camp is designed to, to break down the individual and focus on enhancing the team instead of the individual. So you're going to, you're in a tough scenario to try to be too, uh, too far outside the, the box, but. I have three major recommendations for you. And recommendation number one is this. You can just simply do your own thing and ignore most of the advice that you get. And if you are confident and excellent at your job, people will respect you for that rather than necessarily uh, push you down. That combination is really rare. But it's doable. You can just simply be confident. You can ignore what other people are wanting to do, do your job, and then leave. It probably will not result in quite so much career advancement, especially as you said you're a senior military officer. But how far do you want to go? 
I mean, are you trying to burnish your your resume and go to the to the heights of the career? If so, then the the price of entrance is is playing the politics. If you're in for another five years or three years and and you're satisfied with um, where things are, just do your own thing and have the confidence to ignore other people. If you don't like golf, just say I don't like golf. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, I'll tell you my story in golf because I've, I've been through this. I was a new financial advisor. I was a wet behind the years, 23-year-old uh, when I started, and I was pretty insecure because I was in a new field. I, I was young. I was like, what do I do? How do I do things? So I know that a lot of people said a lot of businesses conducted on golf courses. So I had an opportunity. I was invited to play in a tournament I'd never played in my life. Uh, so I signed up and took some lessons. Um, it's usually a good idea. Take lessons. And I took lessons and I got to the point of hitting the ball that I understood why people like golf. It is really satisfying to uh, be able to connect that ball uh, and that club and and just whack that thing across the field. That is really satisfying. I get it. I like it. Um, but I looked at it and I said, listen, I don't love doing the rest of this. I really don't. And this is going to be a very expensive hobby for me to take up. I don't enjoy schmoozing and socializing in the the country club, golf club atmosphere. Uh, I don't really enjoy that. And I don't want to make the time commitment of this. There's not a chance in the world I'm going to take five hours out of my week uh, and go and play this game once a week just for the the prospect of doing a business deal. So I decided I'm not going to play golf. And what's interesting is once you make the decision and you just simply say, I don't play golf or I don't like golf or I don't want to play golf, people leave you alone and you don't have to deal with it much. Now, it's always nice if you have a a backup, uh, suggest something different, but you can just simply do it and people will respect it. So you can just tell people, I don't want to spend the money on insert activity here. That's going to hurt my savings rate. Think about people who are healthy eaters, uh, especially those people who have obnoxious dietary requirements uh, like vegetarians or gluten-freeers or low-carbers or whatever. I'm I'm joking. Uh, Yes, they are obnoxious. But think about what happens. If I tell you, hey, I don't eat gluten and you and your family do eat gluten and you invite me over for dinner, what are you going to try to do? You're going to try to – serve something without gluten or if I'm a vegetarian and you know that and you know I'm not going to eat the meat, you try to correspond with and and make up for that if you invite me over for dinner with other vegetables. Now, some people might not invite me over for dinner because I'm a vegetarian. That might happen and if so, that's okay but they probably will still at least respect me even though they don't want to go through the work of, of, of cooking for me and they'll probably try to accommodate me. So if you just simply say, I don't want to spend the money, it's going to hurt my savings rate, and you're clear with what you're doing and why you're doing, the people around you are probably going to cater to you. They're going to adjust to that. So simply decide if it's important to you and if you're willing to take the uh, corresponding loss of political uh, influence, then just say, I'm sorry. That's going to impact my savings rate. Recognize that most people around you don't have any confidence Most people around you don't have any money. Most people around you don't have any goals. Most people around you, when they exit the military, the only thing they're going to have is their pension. And if you can have a 50% savings rate plus your pension, you can teach other people how to do that. You can be a real influence for good and for help. So that's my first recommendation. Two other ideas though. Um, Idea number two is fake it. Fake it. 
If you pay attention, there's almost always a way to fake the impression that you're trying to give. For example, you said here on your list of, of four things that uh, that happen, you said um, – uh, some things carry a hefty price tag, formal events, special uniforms, forced outings, and mandatory socializing. Um, you can fake things like social drinking. So if there's mandatory socializing and you've got to go down to the officer's club and hang out there uh, and you know it's going to be uh, time to so- – you're going to be spending your, you know, very likely a lot of money on drinks, um, you can fake it. Now, first, you can just don't drink at all and just say you don't drink. That's simple enough. People leave you alone. Or if you do drink and people know that you drink, then just drink a fake drink most of the time. Um, I did this for years. I'm not a big drinker, and I always, but I had to go to a lot of these functions and events and things like that. So my go-to fake drink was always a Coke with a lime. No one needs to know that your Coke with a lime in it doesn't have rum in it. You can nurse that thing and replenish it for hours. Uh, usually, once you buy one soft drink, it's free. There's a buck or two to get yourself a soft drink, and you get it refilled up all night. Um, and you can nurse it for hours. No one will ever know that you're not socially drinking. Thus, you'll be able to gain the social traction that you're working on without draining your bank account. So fake it. You can fake a lot of things. You can, uh, if if you're expecting to have entry tickets to, um, let's say, to a fancy formal event, and uh, now and in your context, these might be different. But in the civilian world, uh, you're expected to buy tickets to things. Well, just volunteer for them instead. Ask how you can help. Be a volunteer, and you'll be there for the event. But now you actually have some fun because you have something to do instead of just sitting there, and you cut the cost. You don't have to buy the ticket anymore. There are ways to fake it, to be involved, but to not do it in the same way that everyone else is. Driving, um, choose what you drive and fake it. If you, you know, the best sleeper cars out there. Uh, when I was looking, and I, I almost made the mistake one time of buying a Mercedes because the pressure was tremendous. On if it, 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 it was on me, I always felt the pressure to look great, and so you got to drive a fancy car. And then finally, when I came up with the concept of driving a sleeper car uh, through the help and influence of Tom Stanley, it opened my mind. And so his advice to me was: I wrote to Tom Stanley, the author of The Millionaire Next Door. And other books as well. And I said, listen, I, I need to get another car. The car I have is simply not appropriate. It was more hurtful than not. But I don't want to spend a lot of money. I'm a frugal guy and I want to figure out how do I get this done. And, and his response to me was he said, go out and buy a two or three-year-old uh, Chevy full-size, um, be the Suburban or Tahoe, full-size SUV. He says, um, the vast, uh, vast numbers of wealthy, affluent people uh, have in their fleet of vehicles a full-size uh, SUV, Suburban or, or Tahoe, uh, things like that. I wound up buying an Expedition. It was perfect. Nobody gave it a second thought. Uh, it's not. Uh, it was a perfect sleeper car. It was cheap. It was comfortable. It worked well. It was a perfect sleeper car. You can do that uh, if you are expected to uh, ha- drive a nice car. And here I'm not necessarily referring to the military occupation. I'm referring to other listeners. Uh, if you're expected to drive a nice car. Uh, Follow my, you know, get a get an get an SUV, a big SUV, uh, expedition, excursion. Those those are probably getting a little old now. Suburban Tahoe, that type of thing, and they're relatively inexpensive. You get them a few years old, and you won't ever have to worry about what people think. Other great, the best sleeper car out there is a Prius. No one ever knows if you're uh, frugal or if you're an environmentalist. 
So the Priuses, if I were back in sales where I cared about my car, I would be driving a Prius. Minivans also, uh, in theory, they get the job done as well. Uh, you got to be a little bit more confident to drive a minivan than a Suburban, but they get the job done. And the point is that you're in some ways, you're representing, uh, you're faking it. You're representing something while doing it in a thoughtful, careful, frugal way. Now, as far as how you fake the location that you live, I'm not exactly sure, uh, but there might be an opportunity there where you can move into the desirable neighborhood but find some sort of different living accommodations. Around here where I live, it's practically all golf communities. But the interesting thing about most of these golf communities is there's usually an apartment community within the golf community. So a lot of times, if you need to live in the swanky zip code or in the swanky location, you don't need to buy the $800,000 house. You can buy the condo or rent the condo. Now, you're not going to get some of the benefits of the $800,000 house, but there are ways to adjust it. So fake it. Think creatively and say, how can I convey the impression that is desired of me or that people are expecting without necessarily doing it in the most expensive way? My third and final suggestion is lead a change in activities. And if you do this, if you lead And you guys know all about leadership in the military, but for for those who aren't, if you lead, what happens is you can adjust and affect the course of everything. So simply suggest and lead in the alternative activity. If you pay attention, you can fulfill the social contract by arranging an alternative activity for everyone. And if you lead that activity, you can make it something that you actually care about. So if you go to a conference and most of your friends are like, I can't, I, I don't enjoy loud bars and clubs, me personally. It's very rare. If you find me at a conference and I'm hanging out in the bar or the club or whatever at the after party, know that my, well, all I'm itching is for you to start a good conversation with me and go somewhere quiet. I can't stand being in places where I can't hear the person that I'm speaking to. So I just don't have any interest in participating in most of the, uh, events that require me to yell at somebody else over a drink. Uh, I So what I just do is I just do something else. But you can lead in an alternative activity. So start the 6 a.m. running club at the conference or start the, six, the Saturday morning bicycling club instead of the Friday night drinking club. If other people are playing golf, then organize a skeet shooting expedition instead. Shooting skeet is way more fun than golf. You get all of the benefits of golf um, and it's a lot more fun and uh, it can be expensive or it can be inexpensive. If you lead, you can suggest a different restaurant. You can suggest it and you can adjust it. You can adjust it from one activity to another. And what's interesting is once you get this idea of leading, you can uh, anybody can, can adjust, adjust this. If you develop a skill, for example, let's say that in your scenario, you're often going to go out and, and you need to have a lot of, do a lot of socializing. Well, take, a, take an intense interest in fancy bourbon and barbecue and invite everyone over to your house instead of going out to the restaurant and then just serve people the best that you've got. It's cheaper and easier for me to feed a dinner party of 10 people than to go out and pay for two. Uh, I don't love to go out. It's a hassle. Uh, I don't enjoy spending the money. I'd rather eat better food for cheaper. So a lot of times, I'd just rather host the party. Fulfills my goals, fulfills the social obligation, and with the exception of the thousands of people who now listen to the show and knowing that uh, (laughs) – you can do the same thing. Now my friends are all going to know my my secret, but just simply lead the change. 
Those would be some ideas. I hope those are useful to you. Uh, it's something that we all face. There is no perfect answer. Everything is trade-offs. But if you're clear on what's important to you, recognize that you're going to have to pay some sort of cost. It just comes with the territory for different jobs. If you don't like the cost, get out of the job and go somewhere else. But within that, try to fake it and then be the leader and adjust. Next question comes from Andrew. says, Joshua, I love the show, especially your more technical work. You're a great uh, communicator and can buy uh, fire, insp- fire, financial independence, retirement, early, uh, early retirement, inspiration naturally. I thought you might think that this is radical. I'm a federal employee. Wow. I can't believe I have a military guy and a federal employee still listening to the show. I thought I would have annoyed you guys at this point with my libertarian ways. <laughs> I, guess, uh, I guess I haven't been quite so clear with my politics yet. <laughs> I'm a federal employee and my wife is in grad school for physical therapy. I've been contributing to the TSP and not paying down her loans with the justification that once a year's tax-advantaged contribution space is gone, there's no getting it back. She'll be getting one for $20,000 at 6.8% in about a month and has another $20,000 at 6.2%. What do you think of taking a TSP loan in order to pay down the 6.8% student loans? They actually let you continue contributing to the TSP while you are repaying a loan. In this way, I could pay down her loans while simultaneously reserving or getting a rain check on the 2016-2017 contribution space. I'll get a pay bump in May to cover the repayment cash flow. With respect to execution, I'm concerned about risks due to market timing. My entire TSP balance is in the S fund. That's the stock fund for those of you who aren't familiar with the the way the TSP plan works. I'm a young guy. I'm risk tolerant. But I've thought that I could incrementally change my allocation on a weekly basis for 10 weeks, exchanging 5% of the S fund, the stock fund, for the G fund, the guaranteed fund, each time, ending with 50% S and 50% G. This would spread the variability of selling half of my position by taking the loan over 10 weeks weeks instead of one moment in time. Afterward, afterward, I would reverse and incrementally increase the S fund exposure. Is there a better way to reduce risk through the asset allocation? Thanks for any help and all the best for your young family. Andrew, it's an interesting question. I really enjoyed thinking through this one and I really had a difficult time deciding on my answer. Usually, I would answer a question like this by saying neither. Uh, I don't love student loans and I don't love loans against a retirement plan. And although I applaud the attainment of an additional uh, degree, especially if it's one that will result like in physical therapy where it should result in a in a pretty clear increase in pay, I applaud that. I usually think there's a plan C that doesn't involve the loan against the retirement plan and loans against the student loans. Uh, but you wisely constrained me. Uh, to answer the question in either or by not asking me about my input on the situation. So that was very, very wise of you because <laughs> I don't like either of these options. But I do have an answer. Let's talk about some of the, the the benefits. There are a lot of factors here that need to be considered. And so in many ways, it's it's let's just compare it and uh, pretend that you're just going to do one or the other as a fresh new idea. What are the costs involved? Well, the first thing to calculate is the basic monetary costs that we can calculate. The student loans, I'm just going to, for the sake of example, one is at 6.8, one is at 6.2. I'm going to pretend at 6.5. I'm going to average them. Uh, so the student loans, you're going to be paying an interest rate of 6.5%. Uh, that's a substantial interest rate. Uh, that's 
It's a, it's a substantial interest rate. Not as high as obviously some other types of credit, but it's not as low as, uh, as is available. And when you compare it with the interest rate of taking out a loan on your retirement account, there's a big potential savings there. I checked the numbers before answering the question and currently in May of 2016, the current um, interest rate that's charged on the G fund is 1.75%. The way the TSP works is that when you take a loan, you can take out a, two types of loans. You can take out a general purpose loan or a residential loan. Um, a general purpose loan, you can use it for any purpose. It doesn't require any documentation and it will be set up on a repayment term of one to five years. Uh, and so uh, you can take it out and the way it works is that you take the money out of out of the uh, the out of the investment account and they'll you'll pay it back under the and but you'll pay it back at the interest rate of whatever the current return is for the G fund. So uh, that's how they set the interest rate. It's whatever the actual return is of the guaranteed fund, that's what you'll be paying in interest. This is a really attractive source of financing right now because these rates are really really low. Remember the G fund is going to be based uh, it's going to be reflective of what the yield is of U.S. Treasuries, those are substantially low. Most commercially available uh, loans are going to be based upon uh, some multiplier off of some of these rates. So to be able to borrow money at 1.75%, that's really, really uh, compelling. That's a very big spread between six and a half and one and three quarters. But it does leave you open to some potential problems. One concerns that it leaves you open to interest rate risks. Uh, with the G fund, that rate will change. It does change. And so your interest rate, as I understand it, uh, is would also be subject to changing. And if you're borrowing money at 1.75%, the probability is in the future it could go up. In 2012, the G fund interest rate hit a low of 1.25%, but it has been as high as uh, up over 9% back in the 1980s. The 10-year return, uh, excuse me, the 10-year average on the G fund uh, has been about a 4.8%, excuse me, this is uh, the average return here has been 4.8% since August of 1990. So that's about a 25-year uh, return here. So it will fluctuate and it could fluctuate. But that's a substantial savings for you if you use the TSP fund. You only have to pay a $50 loan fee and you're coming out with the uh, – and, and you've got the money uh, at a very low interest rate. Big benefit. Now, on the flip side, the benefit of the interest rate on the student loan is that it's fixed. The risk is that it's higher. Now, I'm assuming that it's fixed. Uh, if I'm wrong on that, then that benefit goes away. What are some of the other things that might play? Well, the student loan might qualify you for a tax deduction based upon the student loan interest. Interest on qualified educational loans is a deductible uh, expense. And so this could apply to you in theory. Uh, now, the key here for you is to recognize and to run some math on some of the limits. Uh, the first thing is how much student loan interest. Uh, first, let's just calculate $40,000 uh, 
times 6.5%. So in the beginning phases, you're going to be paying about $2,600 of interest. Under current tax uh, laws as of 2016, the numbers presently, you can deduct up to, I think it's $2,500 of student loan interest. Yeah, to up to, you can you can deduct either the, the whichever one, the smaller of either $2,500 or the total interest paid. Uh, so that's a it's a benefit. Uh, it's a possible benefit. And this is a really ideal amount where if you were going to borrow, you're borrowing right up to that $2,500 number. Uh, you don't have a bunch of non-deductible interest because you have far more, nor do you have too too little. You also need to pay attention to your uh, – to the, the – deduction phase-outs. So if your filing status is married, filing a joint return, if your your modified adjusted gross income is not more than $130,000, then you will be able to deduct the interest. It's an above-the-line deduction. If it's if your income is between $130,000 and $160,000, you'll have to deal with a phase-out. And if it's $160,000 or more, then your deduction will be eliminated. So the key for you here is you need to check those phase-outs. I don't know what your interest income is, nor do I know what your wife's income is. But a physical therapist here in my area, uh, and well, I don't know what, any idea what your job is, it wouldn't be that tough for a dual-income household to get an excess of $160,000. So you could completely lose the phase-out. So you need to think this through and figure out what are the phase-outs. Am I going to be over that as soon as she's out of school? What is the total amount of the interest that would be deductible? And then what is the actual effective tax rate? Because remember, this is an above-the-line deduction. This is not a credit. So what you're saving is a percentage, whatever your effective tax rate is. So let's say you're paying, you're deducting $2,500 of interest, but if you were saving at a, a, a net of say, a 25% rate, this is only saving you about $625 in taxes due. So it's worth considering. Another very important thing is going to be to consider how quickly will you pay the loan off. Uh, If you're going to pay the loan off in a couple of years, then the tax deduction is going to be of minimal value. If you're going to keep the loan for a longer period of time, then there might uh, be some other uh, option for you. Uh, and so you because you would you would benefit from the deduction for a longer period of time. Also with regard to taking the student loan out, you want to think through and ask is there some kind of student loan repayment plan that would leave me with an ideal or less costly uh, scenario. Go back and listen to the two shows that I've done with Jay Fleischman. He's, he would be a good guy to do a consultation with, uh, studentloanshow.com slash radical. Uh, good guy to do a, stu- a consultation with uh, about some of the different payoff plans. But my guess is that uh, there's not going to be any student pay- loan repayment plan that would be really ideal here. Reason is these are relatively small loans in comparison to what we would hope to be a relatively high income. So, uh, and then physical therapy payments, uh, income, the job of a physical therapist should be fairly well remunerated. So, um, if it is fairly well remunerated, then a lot of the income based repayment plans and things like that aren't so beneficial. That's the whole reason you're in school, after all, is to increase the income. <laughs> so, uh, my guess is these student loan. Repayment plans are not going to be a big uh, deal, but you should think it through. Benefit of the TSP loan is that you, you you can't deduct the interest on the TSP loan. But as you said, you can still continue to, to put money into the account and take advantage of those tax deductions. That can be really, really um, beneficial. So 
should consider that. What about other costs? Well, the TSP loan has the big benefit of being cheap money. Like I said, $50 loan origination fee when you take it out, 1.75% interest rate. But the biggest cost is that you're taking money out of the market. The biggest cost here is your opportunity cost. What could or would or will the money earn if it's in the market versus out on loan to you? Hypothetically, uh, if the S fund were to continue to perform, then that could be a major cost. As of December 2015, the 10-year return on the S fund was 8.03%. Now, you're taking money out of an 8.03% world and you're paying yourself back and you're, you know, quote unquote, at a 1.75% world. So you're giving up basically six points of, of benefit, maybe. And that's where we wind up in the question is, well, should you have the money invested in stocks or should you have the money out on you? Uh, now, with the, with the expense of the student loans being 6.5%, uh, that's not a huge arbitrage between the certainty of a 6.5% guaranteed cost versus the possibility of an 8% you know, 10-year rate of return. That doesn't get me all that excited. So that's tough, but you got to recognize you're giving up the potential for return. Here you kind of got to make a little guess, a little market guess. Does the S fund have a lot of room to run over the coming years while you're taking the money out? Or are we at a low point in the market and it's a great time to have the money all in the S fund? You're going to be the one that's going to have to answer that. What about a worst case scenario? I, I think we got to pay attention to what's the worst case scenario and think of a few different ideas. If you take out the student loans, the problem is you're stuck with them. And now you already have them, but you're stuck with them, at least for now. You, under current law, you can't bankrupt out of student loans. Uh, they're going to be there no matter what. Uh, frankly, I hate people, I hate hearing when people take money out of a qualified retirement plan uh, in order to pay creditors because the qualified retirement plan is protected from the claims of creditors no matter what. The ERISA, uh, Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA, ERISA, the ERISA guidelines and protections on on 401ks, these are as close to ironclad as it gets. So – and your TSP fund is, is – is, the same. It's as close to an ironclad guarantee and protection from the claims of creditors. So if you had any other source of money to use, I would take the loan out from there instead of the student loans. The problem is student loans don't help because student loans also have that claim of creditors. You can't get out of them. So as a creditor, a student loan is a bad person to owe. So what would be the worst case scenario? Well, um, your wife takes out the student loan, signs up for the 6.5% interest rate and, you know, you wind up with $40,000 of debt. Uh, you keep your money invested in the S fund and the markets tank for an extended period of time. Let's just say next five years. Then <laughs> uh, maybe interest rates increase, um, meaning you can't borrow the money cheaply anymore. Uh, and who knows? Maybe you work for the federal government. Maybe the growth of the federal government gets reined in and you lose your job for some reason. Now you've got unbankruptable student loans outstanding. You've lost your money in the stock market crash and now you've got to go find a job, new job and you don't have any money left. <laughs> so think through the worst case scenario uh, and control for it. 
in weighing all these factors, uh, it was a tough decision. But I think that if I were in your shoes, given the criteria, the scenario you gave to me, I would take the TSP loan and I would use that to pay off the student loans. And here's why. First, you save on interest. On the TSP loan, you have a substantially lower interest versus the student loan interest, and it's compellingly lower. 6.5% interest on $40,000 of debt is $2,600 of interest cost. 1.75% interest based upon the G-fund rates is $700 of interest cost. That's a much greater savings than you can get even if you do qualify for the student loan interest tax deduction. $700 of cost, and I don't don't even know what your tax rate is, but that's probably a much lower uh, cost than you're going to get even if you do get the tax deduction. The interest rate risk on the fluctuating G fund is not huge right now. I, I don't see it as huge. Because that fund is based upon treasuries and because the whole orientation of the Federal Reserve is to keep interest rates down and because if interest rates rise substantially, uh, it will wind up destroying the federal budget. All of the political motivations exist to suppress interest rates. Uh, It's a major motivation for the Federal Reserve, for the Treasury. They want to do anything within their power to suppress interest rates. Now, we can't go in depth into the Federal Reserve and what their motivations are as compared to the Treasury and, and all the rest. But the, basically, um, I'm just simply saying if, if interest rates were to rise substantially, this in theory has the is the benefit because the economy is growing. But the problem is it in- massively increases the federal government's borrowing cost. And our current president has increased the federal def- uh, debt more than the 43 previous presidents. And I see no reason to think that the next president won't follow suit. It's very much in the political interest of the powers that be to keep interest rates as low as possible. So I'm not too worried about that, especially if you're not intending this to be a long-term loan. Plus, you've got a one- to five-year payback period uh, that you're going to be required when you take the loan out. Uh, So it's not going to be a long-term loan. When you get the interest rate savings – and the tax savings on, as you said, additional contributions, I think you've got a very compelling financial argument uh, in favor of the TSP loan. But what about the direction of the market? Well, uh, I don't think it's a bad time for you to take some profits from stocks. Of course, depending on when you're actually doing this, you've got to actually look and see. But um, it doesn't seem to me like a bad time to take profits from stocks. So I like the idea from of moving some profits out of stocks uh, and taking it and, as you're doing, investing it into your human capital. And I even love the simplicity, finally, of the loan payoff being able to be set up to come directly from your income. Here's my suggestion to you. Allocate 100 uh, percent right now if your wife is in school full-time, uh, I'm assuming, and you're living on your income. Simply allocate 100 percent of her new income to the debt payment. Fiddle with the numbers however you have to 
in order to make that work. But when she starts bringing a paycheck home from her new fancy physical therapy job, then go ahead and adjust your paycheck down so that loan is paid off in no time. And then you've got the best of both worlds. Wasn't an easy answer for me to figure out, but that is what I think I would do in that situation. Next question comes from Niels. Dear Joshua, first of all, I would like to thank you for the the outstanding work that you are doing at Radical Personal Finance. I stumbled upon your podcast last December. Listening to your entertaining episodes has introduced me to the concept of personal finance and has opened my eyes about my own financial behavior. And since then, I've never stopped enjoying your engaging way of presenting different topics. Thank you, Niels. In various episodes, you've talked about exiting the rat race of a corporate job. This and the fact that you yourself have undertaken the journey of financial advisor to media entrepreneur makes me want to ask a question regarding my own situation. I'm 23 years old, from Germany, and I'm about to finish my bachelor degree in economics. In the last years, I have been drawn to the area of trading and finance. I've read everything I could get my hands on and have tried to learn as much as possible. Consequently, my plan was to apply for a master's program in finance In order to learn more about this topic and get access to the job market, I got accepted into a very good business school, which offers courses I am interested in. On the other hand, I've become very attracted to the field of entrepreneurship now as well. I think your podcast is not innocent in this case. I have an idea about a product which I have already tested locally with some success. I would like to try selling this product throughout Germany. Even if this activity does not achieve the success that I aspire, the financial downside would be limited, and I'm certain that I would learn a lot as a result. However, this would require me to take a break for at least one year. I'm not that young anymore, and one year off would definitely hurt my CV. I know to an entrepreneur, worrying about his CV might sound limited, but as I said, I'm really interested in the financial industry, and I could imagine working in it. My problem is that in my case, there is no clear black and white. There are two possibilities I'm really passionate about, so I was wondering if you would have whether you would have some opinion on this topic or could give me some advice on how to think about it. Best Niels. Niels, I know nothing about the German context of education, employment, getting jobs, things like that. So you need to filter my answer through your knowledge of the local area, the local market. I'm not totally ignorant of of some aspects of German business culture. I studied international business in college. But with regard to the specifics, you need to filter this through your own advice. But I'd make two major comments. One, you will learn very little in business school that will impact your life and your career. You'll learn far more building a business for a year, even if it's total failure. Two, the gap of one year on your CV is absolutely meaningless in the large scheme of things, especially if you have a good story to share. So let me expand on these things. Uh, With regard to schooling, you sound like a motivated, dedicated learner. You said that you're about to finish up a bachelor's degree in economics and you've been reading everything you could get your hands on and you've been trying to learn as much as possible. Plus, you're listening to Radical Personal Finance. So, (laughs) of course, you're a motivated and dedicated learner. (laughs) Point is that the character quality that you need is that of being a motivated and dedicated learner. And if you are actually interested in the areas of trading and finance – You will learn almost nothing in school that will benefit you. A bachelor's degree in economics, I'm going to say some harsh words. I I say them with research and with thoughtful – with thought. Um, 
So don't be offended by the harsh words. But a bachelor's degree in economics is almost meaningless when it comes to the grand scheme of how the world actually works. And it's definitely meaningless in the areas of trading and finance. If German, if a German bachelor's degree of economics is anything like uh, a U.S.-based uh, bachelor degree of economics, you have just enough basic knowledge about the terms where now you can go and you can learn a little bit more about how things actually work. Now, trading and finance are very different. The reason I'm being so harsh on the value of it is primarily because of the point of trading. You need to recognize that even if you go and get a master's degree in finance, none of your finance professors are wealthy traders. All of your finance professors are academics. And there's very little that's going to correspond over from the world of academics, mainstream finance academics, to the actual world of trading. Now, if you can be like uh, the famous scenario with Warren Buffett going to take classes at Columbia University because Ben Graham was teaching there, then go for it. If you find a Ben Graham Definitely go do there. And if you have to take a degree to, to go and study under a Ben Graham, do that. But in the main, this doesn't exist. What's actually happening is that you are a motivated, dedicated, industrious person. And as such, you're pursuing schooling and you're motivated to get your bachelor's degree and your master's degree. But these things are not relevant to actual trading. And they're actually not really even relevant to finance perhaps slightly relevant to corporate finance. Corporate finance would be more uh, corporate <laughs> and that would be where academic knowledge might be somewhat useful. But you know, just from your personal reading, you know everything you need to know. The only reason I would consider going to master's degree program is because of access to people. Both access to people who are teaching in the program. So if you could find a really compelling group of professors that are doing ground-shaking research of some kind or there's a visiting professor who is a world leader on markets and finance and they teach uh, as an adjunct professor or just for fun at the local professor at local university, that would be a good reason to get a master's degree. Or if as you said, you need it to open the doors into a company or industry, then that would be a useful reason to get it. But it's not about education. Again, I'm not all that familiar with all the ins and outs of German education, but it's the same in, in, in almost any Western nation. Higher education is, is – is, is, well, you're not going to learn all that much. You're going to learn far more studying yourself and especially in economics. You're going to learn far more in studying yourself. If – you have the interest in building this business or in trying this business. I can promise you that you will learn much more from that than you will learn in the academic setting. Just simply from who you're learning from. Again, your professors are bureaucrats. They're very good at getting jobs and keeping jobs. That's what they are. That's what they do. So they're going to be very good at teaching you how to get and keep a job. And they're going to be very good at giving you an academic construct. They're not going to be good at teaching you how to run a business because they've not run one. And so you're going to learn by actually pursuing the business how business works. Because if you actually start this business, you're going to learn from your customers, 
They're going to teach you how to sell to them. You're going to learn from your suppliers. You're going to learn from your employees how to manage them and how to lead them. You're going to learn from your investors how to build a business. So if you're just simply working on how much should I learn, you will learn far more in a year or two of running a business than you will in a year or two of graduate school. Consider that. Even if your business fails, you will learn far more running the business. Now, I still don't know whether that answers the question, but if you're focusing on it with regard to how much you want to learn, I promise you'll learn more building the business. If you want to do in finance and trading, take any money that you have and focus on learning by actually investing (laughs) if you can versus school. Now, they're not always mutually exclusive. You might be able to do both. But if it's either or, you'll learn far more in the business. The second thing, you're concerned about a gap year on your CV. Uh, Again, perhaps the German business culture is so absolutely uh, filled with applicants that you can't possibly have a gap of one year on your CV. But here's what I promise you. It will never be easier in your life to take a year off than it is right now. You didn't mention anything about a wife or children. It'll never be easier for you to take time off and start a business than it is now. Now, I don't buy this whole um, thing that a lot of times people who are older say where they say, well, 23 years old is, is, is far too young to be worrying about serious things of life. Um, I think you ought to be worrying about serious things of life at 23. I think you ought to be worrying about serious things of life at 15. I don't buy this concept of extending childhood until 35 that, that many people do. But just because you're worried about learning serious things doesn't mean that you can't recognize the position that you're in, the freedom, the flexibility, the lack of obligations, the lack of support that you need to provide to other people. This is the easiest time for you to actually take a year off. And I'm confident that this will not impact your your opportunities. I have met German travelers all over the world taking their gap year and traveling. This is honored in your culture far more than it is in the United States. But even it's honored here in the United States. And the second thing is if you actually spend this time building a business, you won't have a gap on your CV. What you'll actually have is experience. And the premier leading universities here in the United States put a high priority on experience. I think it, it should be – it's not illegal, but the best graduate school students schools seem to discourage people from trying to join right out of a bachelor's degree program, and I think that's right. I think you're going to not gain as much benefit from a master's degree program if you try to go right out of a bachelor's degree program because you still haven't had any real contact with the market with the marketplace. So the gap, you won't have a gap on your CV because you'll actually say from you know, 2016 to 2017, I built a business. XYZ Enterprises, I had this idea for this product and I sold it and here's what I learned from it. And you can articulate that story and that's a story that will stand out to a high degree. It will stand out to an admissions counselor at an elite university. It's a story that will stand out to a hiring manager. It's a story that will stand out to a CEO. And what you'll gain in a scheme like you described of traveling around Germany to sell this product, what you'll gain is contacts and connections and a network. And that will be something that will benefit you. So given those two options that you said, I would say if you want to do the business, try it. 
with the full knowledge that if it fails, it fails, and you go back and pursue the other one. But if you go and pursue the school career now, it'll be much harder to ever extricate yourself and try the business in the future. Hope that helps. Next question, final question for today comes from Kyle. Kyle says, Joshua, I want to thank you for everything you do on your podcast. I gave you about as glowing a five-star review on iTunes that I'm capable of writing, and I also joined as a patron of the show because I want to keep getting your podcasts. Kyle, thank you. You've also helped change my entire approach to personal finance, which wasn't much of an approach at all. I also enjoy listening to your Encouraging Christian Fathers podcast. I'm 30, and my wife is due to have our first children, first child in the next week or so. My main motivation in seeking out personal finance advice was to ensure that I'm able to provide for my wife and future son, especially if something were to happen to me. I'm about to go out on paid paternity leave, and the leave is 16 weeks. My top priority is spending some time to get to know my son and support my wife, who is a school teacher. One of our main goals is for my wife to be a stay-at-home mother, so she won't be going back to school and will be losing a source of income. I wanted to pick your brain and see what you advise that I do with this free time. I'm really interested in creating an additional cash flow via either opening a side business or getting into real estate, etc., in order to reach financial freedom. We're very early on in our journey to reach this goal, so I would just appreciate any advice that you have since I have so much time that I could take action in educating myself and building my cash flow. I'm of the mindset that the economy will be going into another recession in the next year or two, so I'm not sure if real estate is the best option at this time, but I'd appreciate any of your insight. I'm a CPA, and I work for a large bank in their accounting department. I only work about 45 hours a week. I used to work for a big four public accounting firm, and I had 70 to 80-hour work weeks with lots of travel on top of that. So the new job is much easier for me to manage, which is why I'm trying to find a good way to spend my extra time generating additional cash flow. Good question, Kyle. Um, so here are some thoughts. First, you won't really have much free time in the beginning of the birth of your baby. And the best way for you to invest your time is into your relationship with your wife, not into increasing cash flow. I have a tagline of the show and – I built the tagline because I was trying to figure out how do I express what's important to me. And the tagline is live a rich life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. I'll do a standalone show at some point on that and kind of expand it. But it's important to live a rich life now. Your entire focus for getting into personal finance or researching it was to care for your wife and, and children, especially in case something were to happen to you. Well, guess what? The time and the experience – and what your life looks like over these 16 weeks is going to be much more impactful than any extra money that you can earn. Life is not a race to the most dollars. It's not a race to see who can be the richest. It's not a race to see who can retire the soonest. It's not a race. You're not in competition with anybody. So we've got to balance living that rich life now while also pursuing our plans for financial freedom. There are a couple of areas that men neglect that, for me, deeply anger me. Um, the first one that gets me going like nothing is when men abdicate their leadership in coordinating and planning their weddings. <laughs> Somehow there's this cultural perception that husbands are mere figure pieces. All they should do is show up on the appointed day and stand in their spot and everything's great. I don't think that's a great way to initiate your marriage. Um, so any unmarried men who may be listening um, – Consider making a commitment not to dump all that stress and work on your fiance. Uh, get involved and lead so that you can assure that your shared vision for the wedding day is accomplished. And um, big tip 
shoulder the burden of all the stress so that you can have a relaxed and rested spouse to enjoy your honeymoon with rather than a spouse who just stumbled um, through the doors and, and out, the, out on the honeymoon with you. Um, anyway, second area that angers me is childbirth. <laughs> it frustrates me to no end when men dump childbirth onto their wives and they're not involved and they're not participating. Now, obviously you are. I'm just saying that it's very important to me. But I, I'm, I'm, there's a cultural concept that somehow, oh, we're just going to have the 16 weeks of paternity leave and we're just going to hang out and I'm just not going to really do anything. And my wife, you know, she'll, she, she's got the hard work to do. But I'll just be able to hang out and read books and, and, and you know, buy houses. Um, not accusing you of that. I'm saying that's the culture that exists. So my advice to you is – uh, don't expect the paternity leave is a vacation uh, and don't treat it like a vacation. It's not. During pregnancy and up to the time of birth, it's your responsibility to alleviate all of the stresses on your wife that you possibly can. Uh, many of the problems that women face during difficult childbirth are connected to stress, both physical and psychological. So get involved and work to get rid of those things. Get involved during the actual birth. You're the one who's the most perfectly suited to help and assist her during labor and delivery. I get really angry with so-called men who spend much of their time given over to violent, blood-filled movies and video games, etc., but they don't want to help their wife during one of the most vulnerable times of her life because they've decided that they're uncomfortable with the physical process of childbirth and the bodily fluids involved. Give me a break. <laughs> if you want to feel like and be a man, get involved and support your wife. Um, I've actually been uh, been the one to receive both of our babies um, during uh, their delivery without anybody else interfering. It's an incredibly empowering experience. So if you want to feel like a man, uh, work with your wife even during the delivery of the baby. And then probably uh, – I can't say most importantly, very importantly, get involved and commit yourself to doing as much of the work that you possibly can after birth. Recognize this truth. I think this is lost on many young husbands. The easiest, most textbook delivery of a baby is actually major physical trauma on a woman's body. And she needs time to recover. So your job is to do all of the work. And it's a lot of work. If you can do the work as much as possible and give her a restful time your entire household will benefit. Uh, the first few weeks of a new baby are really, really hard. Uh, and this actually blindsided me with our first child. I didn't expect it to be so hard. We had spent so much time and effort and focus preparing for the delivery of the baby that we just didn't spend a lot of time necessarily preparing for what happens after delivery. In the sense that, uh, like specifically breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is really hard. It takes a lot. It's really, really hard on a new mom. So uh, things there are other things as well that are really, really hard on a new mom. So do as much as you can. Um, change the diapers. Put the baby to sleep. And don't schedule things too tightly for that period of time. Uh, the first months of a baby's life can be relatively easy sometimes because after the first couple of weeks of, uh, of new baby and settling in, they sleep a lot. They're pretty simple. They don't really move anywhere. You don't have to chase after them. They don't require a lot of energy to, to run around after. They just hang out and sleep. Uh, but they also can be really, really tough. <laughs> and sometimes the babies have a tough time uh, getting settled. 
I know that was the case with our second one. Really, really tough time. She was super sick for many, many months. So the point of these things is that don't necessarily assume that just because you have 16 weeks off and you have two people and one baby that all of a sudden this is the ideal time to try to start all kinds of new projects and make big plans. Uh, it's it's really probably not <laughs> uh, because many of you probably didn't sign up to hear Joshua's lecture on childbirth, but <laughs> those are some things that are important to me. So what can you do that are going to help you? Well, first, regarding your goal of her staying at home with the baby, this has nothing to do with your amount of income and everything to do with your expenses. Now, it's a pretty strong statement. How do I know this? Well, because after looking at hundreds and hundreds of households, it's always expenses and not income. If you have this goal for your family, um, it's 100% based upon your expenses. You're employed as a CPA, which is solidly middle-class income, and that's plenty to be able to support your family without extra additional income. And this is it's always it. The, the decision for how a household can afford for one spouse to be at home with the kids, it's pretty simple. You simply decide. Now, if you're unsure about whether or not your family can afford uh, for her to stay home, you said that was your goal, so that should be your project. So use the time of paternity leave to cut your expenses. Go through every line item in the budget and cut whatever has to be cut in order to get the number down. Dump the second car. Dump the cable. Dump uh, – you know, if you need to move to a cheaper place, make arrangements and move. Do what you have to do. Now, from your question, I'm guessing that you've already done all this stuff and you're saying, OK, well, I've done that stuff. Now what can I do with the extra time? Well, you invest it into your career plan. And at the moment, it sounds to me like the most important thing that you can do is get a little bit more clarity on the path forward. You said that you want, quote, extra cash flow. So the question is, when do you want it and in what form do you want it? You're a tax man, so you should recognize that extra cash flow is not always the immediate goal. Um, you may not need extra cash flow now. If you just need extra cash flow now in order to – fund your lifestyle. Well, the best way to get that is through uh, doing side work in the line of business that you're in, doing tax returns on the side or um, hiring yourself out as a part-time bookkeeper or doing a better job so that you can increase your income. That's the best um, That's the best thing for you to do if you need extra cash flow now. But if you say, well, I don't necessarily need extra cash flow now. What I actually want is cash flow in the future but from a different source. Well, then the best way for you to invest the time is to figure out how to transition to a different career, different job, different occupation. If you say, well, it's actually neither of those things. Uh, I don't necessarily need the extra cash flow now, uh, but I want to you know, build it more in the future, but I don't want to switch to a different career right now. Well, then you need to figure out where are the investment opportunities in your area. And so what I would be spending time doing during the 16 weeks is spending a lot of time talking with my wife about what our vision is and what our plans are and what are the things that are important for us. If your goal and your vision is 10 years from now to be financially independent and travel uh, – excuse me, financially independent with an income and you decide that, hey, we would like to do that using uh, rental houses – well, then what I would invest my time in going to some of the local real estate investor meetups and I would invest my time reading some books on real estate and I would invest my time trying to figure out who can I interview in my local area and take out to lunch so I can understand what are the options locally and I would invest my time into that type of activity. But if on the other hand you said, no, I want extra cash flow so that um, three years from now we can take a year off, well, now I'm going to invest my extra time into building as much cash as possible or something. I'm necessarily uh, 
being a little bit vague with the answer because there is no one specific thing. You've got to decide where you're going with your career. That's the cornerstone of everything. Once you understand where you're going with your career, what type of cash flow you want and when, then everything is simple. And I took your question on this show because this is the problem that most of us are facing. It's, it's Actually, I'm, I'm teaching a class here in West Palm Beach um, starting in June on the topic. And then uh, depending on how that goes, I intend to um, take it virtually. But the, the cornerstone is having a clear career plan. If you're not here on – if you don't have a clear career plan, everything else is hard. And so the biggest theme of your question and also many questions is this generalized question. Well, if you ask a generalized question, you, I necessarily have to give you a generalized answer. And it's not necessarily about my answer. Um, if you ask a generalized question of yourself, you have to give yourself a generalized answer. But if you ask a clearer and specific question, you can get a clearer and specific answer. The better your questions, the better your answers. The more clear and specific questions, the more clear and specific answers. So what I would do is I would spend this time of my life focusing on living a rich life because having a baby and making that time special and making that time just deep and and doing it together it is it puts everything to shame. You know, there's so many men out there that 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 are worried about what do I give my wife for Mother's Day or what do I do for Valentine's Day? And I somehow have to 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 fit in this, uh, you know, I have to get the reservations three months early at the, uh, I saw this, uh, somebody um, three months early, hey, Valentine's Day is coming up. You need to get reservations to the restaurant. Don't forget, this is the time to do it because it's really meaningful. Well, it may be really meaningful. But if you neglect this time, you can't make up for this with Valentine's Day dinners. Childbirth and the transitions and those things that happen there, that's where you actually demonstrate your love. And then you remind your wife of it on Valentine's Day. But if you get this wrong and you're off focusing on um, how am I how do I make more money and how do I build my uh, you know how do I build my emperor, em- empire and, and and you're spending your time with your nose stuck in a book or you're spending your time off um, you know building businesses and you neglect this very important transition time. Well, you might have more money down the road. You might have more cash flow, but you may not have your wife. And you can't buy your way out of that with Valentine's Day dinners. But if you focus on this time, on the more important things, and guess what? Valentine's Day dinners can be a pizza if that's what you got. And that pizza can be enjoyed in love and harmony. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So don't get this one wrong. Focus on the important things. The career will still be there. You can use some time for reading and studying and going out and figuring out what the plans are. But use the time for relationship. Together with your wife, get very clear on your goals. And the plan will be simple. You'll probably know the answer and not have to ask me. Congrats on the birth of a baby. Love hearing that. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to the show today. Hope these answers have been useful to you. Let me think of any announcements that I need to make here as we close. I hope these answers have been useful to you. Um, 
working hard on, you know, I mentioned that class there. I'm doing a class here in West Palm Beach, just finalized the date. If any of you are local here to South Florida, um, I'll put up a sales page and whatnot for it in the future. It's going to be called, um, it's going to be built off of Dan Miller's curriculum, uh, but it's finding and creating the work that you love. If you get the work piece right, everything else is, is, is simple. This the, Getting the work and career choice right is the cornerstone of everything else. I'll expand on this in the future, uh, but I do intend, I'm doing a local class here in West Palm Beach, uh, and then I do intend to also offer this in a virtual format in the future. Uh, I think that uh, it'll be very powerful in a virtual format, but I like I want to do this, this one in person as well. So keep an ear out for that. I don't have the landing page up, don't have the list or any of that stuff out up uh, for it. Uh, but that'll be coming out soon. Thank you so much for those of you who've been leaving reviews. Um, I don't love to make this a central theme of the show, but reviews of Radical Personal Finance are extremely helpful and useful. Uh, and I would ask you, if you have a moment, just pull out your phone, uh, leave a review on iTunes, or if you have leave a review in the Google Play Store. One favor to ask, Google tells me that Radical Personal Finance is now available in the, in the Google Play Music app. Uh, they're rolling out podcasts, supposedly, little by little, to the Google Play Music app. Now, this is different than the Radical Personal Finance app, which is a standalone app in the App Store. That's what I've had available for a while on the Android platform. But will some of you with Android phones please do me a favor, and if you could just check in the Play Music app itself and see if my podcast is listed there. Um, I haven't found anybody that says it is, but Google tells me it is. So I'm finally putting it out here publicly on the show. Let me know if any of you have that. They said that they're rolling it out little by little um, in stages. So I'd love to know that. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be back with you all soon.